You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. Good morning. If you haven't done so already, uh, go ahead and turn your Bibles, your Bible apps to Romans chapter 10. My name is Brad, and I'm one of the pastors here at Community Church. We're glad you are joining us for worship this morning, whether you're in the room or whether you're joining us online. We are glad you are worshiping with us today. We've been in this series on the book of Romans since January, um, and I hope you've enjoyed kind of this slow walk that we've done through uh, this letter to the ancient city of Rome, to the church that was in Rome, uh, written by Paul. And, and we, as we've gone through this, we've seen that there are different sections uh, within the book of Romans, and we're in the middle right now of a, of a section, uh, three chapters, 9 through 11, where Paul is pouring out his heart for the Jewish people that he loves. As you heard uh, Perrin just read just a moment ago, there's, there's a lot in this chapter today about uh, the Israelite people, about how God interacted with the Israelite people, and about how they uh, misunderstood and even some of them rejected who Jesus was. So it would be a, a fair question to ask, why are we spending so much time on these chapters that force us to look at the story of ancient Israel? Why are we spending so much time? What does that have to do with us today? In light of everything going on in our world, in light of everything going on in our community, in light of what's going on in our, each of our own homes and families and lives, what in the world does the story of ancient Israel have to do with us? Can't we just start with Jesus and go from there? That would be a, a fair question to ask. And Here's the answer. When we understand clearly the story of Israel, it illuminates the character of our God. And not only the character of our God, it shows us our own place and God's story of how he loves humanity. This is not historical trivia. This is our family story. See, our story and the Israelite people's story connect in Jesus. The Israelite story was pointing to a coming Savior, to a coming Jesus. Our own helplessness, our own hopelessness points to a Jesus who has already overcome. So in fact, knowing well the story of Israel shows us our own hearts. It shows us our own standing with God. Israel was the microcosm that the rest of us can watch and learn from. When you look at the Gospels, when you look at the story of Jesus, we see that Jesus himself seemed to think that the story of Israel was relevant, that it was true, that it was important. You look at the, the early church, the early church did not give up on the Old Testament. In fact, in our, uh, in our chapter today, Romans chapter 10, there are 21 total verses. There are 10 references to the Old Testament. Literally every other verse in our chapter today is a callback to the Old Testament. John Piper is a, is a pastor and he's a, he's a writer. He, he says this much better than I can. He says, Israel is the visible theater where you can see in history what's really going on in you. So as we look at Romans 10 today, we're going to see what's really going on in our own hearts. And what's really going on is this, is that we are made to be a people of hope. We are made to be a people of hope, not a people of failure, not a people of of frustration. And that hope is not of our own making, but it comes from a loving God, a loving God who welcomes all people to his family dinner table. 
So with that long intro in mind, let's look at the first four verses this morning of Romans chapter 10. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. The first thing that we see in our text this morning is that there is a righteousness that leads to hope. There's a righteousness that leads to hope. The first four verses of this chapter can really be summed up like this. Jesus is the culmination of the law. He is the solution to the problem that the law points out. So come get the hope that he offers. There's a righteousness from faith in God that leads to hope, and it's available to all people through Jesus. See, the law that Israel lived by, the law was always meant to end this way. The law was always meant to find its completion in Jesus. The people of Israel, the people of Israel had the opportunity to live by faith in God. They had the opportunity to live by faith in God, not by trying to complete a list of duties or a list of actions to try and please God with how well they could do them. And for centuries, God dealt specifically with the people of Israel as an example to the rest of the world, as a, meant to be a light to the rest of the nations. We only have to flip back a couple pages in the book of Romans to see this. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Paul writes, Now that we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world be accountable to God. Israel's example was meant to be a light to the nations, with the law showing the Israelites and then consequently all people that they could never actually measure up to God's holiness and righteousness on their own. And when Jesus came, the old covenant, the old agreement between God and his people was completed, and a new one was established. Now, at first, this can seem like a contradiction, right? It can almost seem like God made a a mid-course correction and and changed the name of the game on the Jewish people. Or maybe it seems like God is a a flip-flopper, and he can't quite figure out what kind of God he wanted to be, and so he changed. But in fact, Jesus and the law are not at odds with each other. They're not at odds with each other, and we know this because Jesus himself said it. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, Do not misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. This is why Paul writes in verse 4 of our text today, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. See, the law was there to prepare people for Jesus. It was always meant to end this way, to find its completion in Jesus. It was not a mid-course correction by God. Think of it this way. When I'm driving in the car with my two daughters in the back seat, one of their favorite things to do is to try and roll the windows down. Okay? If we're driving on 465 at 80 miles an hour and I tell them they cannot roll their windows down, but we pull into our neighborhood, I tell them they can roll their windows down and hang out the car as much as they want, have I contradicted myself? Of course not. The first command was meant to get us to the second. And that's exactly how it was 
with Israel. It was meant to get them to Jesus. See, God sent Jesus to die for us because he wanted his children, which includes all of us, he wanted his children to be made right with him. And for years, the Jewish people had the opportunity to live by faith in God's mercy under the law. But instead, they've been trying to create their own righteousness. They've been trying to create their own holiness and their own goodness. Even after encountering Jesus, many of them still wanted to create their own righteousness to make themselves, to, to try to make themselves right with God by how well they could perform. And this is where the theater of Israel impacts our story. See, they missed the point. They missed the point, and it's a warning to us to not miss the point either. This is what grieves Paul so deeply. This is why he has heartbroken at the beginning of our chapter today. The Israelite people had the law, and they missed the point. The point being that they needed a savior. They needed a rescuer. They needed Jesus. They had the law, and they missed the point. And we have the word of God written on our hearts, verse 8 tells us, that we should not miss the point either. Let's look at verses 5 through 8. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. Now, the, the wording in our English translation here, it, it, it's okay if it seems kind of confusing and overlapping. It is, it get the, our English translation gets a little confusing and overlapping. Essentially, the bottom line of these verses is this. You don't need to try and make yourself holy enough to go up and grasp God. And you don't need to try and make yourself strong enough to raise Christ from the dead. God has given you all that you need if you will believe and confess the word that he's impressing upon your heart. Believe in Jesus and you will have access to the salvation that is available to you. This is the recipe for hope that we desperately need to hear. This is the recipe for hope that the world around us needs so clearly. How often have we tried to create hope for ourselves in something that cannot give it to us? Have you ever had a job change and thought this is the one that will finally get me on the path of life that I want? Have you ever started a new relationship and thought this is the one that will satisfy what hurts inside of me? Maybe you've put your hope in a politician or an ideology or a movement and thought this is what will bring a full measure of satisfaction to all that's wrong in our world. And these are not bad things at all. But when we rely on weak things to give us a strong foundation of hope, we should not be surprised when they disappoint. See, good creations, good creations, which is what careers and relationships and, and civic engagements are, good creations were never meant to have the strength of their creator. In the end, they cannot provide the hope that we want, and they definitely cannot provide the righteousness with God that we need. 
As I was preparing for this morning, you know, I kept thinking of the, the words to the old church song that, that starts like this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. See, God has offered us a way to access him, to have him, to be made right with him through Jesus. What was once contained to the people of Israel as an example for the rest of the world is now available to all of us through Jesus Christ. Regardless of our background and regardless of our ability or inability to earn it on our own. And so just like Israel, you can try and hang on to the law. You can try and keep doing good trying to impress God with the good that you do in the world. Or you can accept that, just like this pastor, you will always fall short. You will always fall short on your own, but the grace and mercy of Jesus' death and resurrection has given you a righteousness that can be yours forever. And that is the genesis. That is the root of a true and lasting hope. Let's look at the next section of our chapter this morning, verses 9 through 13. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The second thing that we see in this text this morning is that there is a fulfilled promise that comes from belief. There's a fulfilled promise that comes from belief. And what is that promise? It's salvation. Salvation is here for those that would believe in their hearts and confess with their mouths. While we deserve to be separated from God forever. Because of our inability to be holy and without sin, Christ died for us and saved us from that separation from God. How beautiful a promise that is, that when we believe in Jesus, all the promises of God are available to us. But what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to believe? Right? We say this word, and, and it's more than just agreeing with a set of facts. I think there's two things that are wrapped up in the word believe. The first thing is to trust. To trust. To put our trust fully in Jesus. If we look at, at Mark chapter 10, in the Gospel of Mark, one of the stories of Jesus' life, if we look at Mark chapter 10, there's a rich man that comes directly to Jesus, and he asks him a very plain question. He says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to have eternal life? And interestingly enough, the first thing Jesus says is essentially, you need to obey the law. You need to keep the law. And the man says, I, I've done that. I, I do that. And Jesus says, okay, I need you to give away all of your wealth. Drain your bank account. Sell your house. Give away everything. And then come follow me. Literally. Come be part of my homeless traveling entourage. And the question that Jesus is asking him, is will you trust? Will you trust me? Will you depend on me to give you what you need? 
Or do you need to keep control over something in your life? And that is essentially the question that is before us today when we talk about what it means to believe. Do I trust God enough to follow him where he's going to lead me? Or do I need to retain control over different aspects of my life? So if the first thing, to believe, the first thing that it means to believe is to trust, the second thing that it means is that we lay down our lives. We lay down our lives. Again, in, in the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 8 this time, uh, Jesus tells his followers, he says very clearly, that if we will give up our lives, if we give up our preferences, if we give up our conveniences, our calendars, our finances, our life decisions, if we allow God to set the priority of how those things get used, we will find a life worth living, that we will be saved. That in fact, to be a disciple of Jesus, that means that we lay down our lives and instead we pick up a cross and be ready to suffer as Jesus suffered because we know that we have a good Father who will richly bless us. So to believe means that we trust and we lay down our lives. And in exchange, we are saved. We confess with our lips and we receive the promise of salvation. And the beautiful, wonderful, scandalous nature of God is that everyone is saved this way. Everyone can be saved this way. Everyone is saved the same way. This is exactly what Jason talked about last week when he said that it is not fair. It's completely not fair, and that is good news. That is good news because if God was being fair with me, if he was giving me what I deserved based on my actions, based on my life, I should have been wiped off the face of the earth years ago. But thankfully, God is not fair. Instead, he is merciful, and he's waiting to richly bless those who will put their trust in him. Let's look at verse 12 again. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. There is not a God for the churchy people and a God for the rest of us. There's not a God for the normal people and then a God plus or God deluxe for those that are extra holy or extra good. There is one God and he is the Lord of all. The open door that he promises leads to the greatest gift you can imagine. You get God when you believe. You are now a daughter or a son. You are part of the family. The door is open for all who would believe and come sit and eat at his dinner table. But belief is hard for a lot of people. Belief is hard for a lot of people, and so I don't want to make it sound like this is an easy step to take. You may be here this morning, and you may believe that there is no God at all, that God is not there. Or maybe you believe that there is a God there, but that he, he doesn't, or he can't, or he won't interact with people down here. Or maybe you believe that there is a God there, and he does bless some people. He does give hope and life to some people, but not to you. Not to you because you've messed it up pretty bad. I can't convince you with my words this morning to believe if you don't. But I can tell you my story. And my story is this. 
I used to have no hope. I used to have no hope as I walked through life simply trying to be a good person. And then God did something. And I encountered Jesus. And now with his Holy Spirit working inside of me, I have a daily hope that does not run out, and it is real. And instead of trying to create my own goodness with God, instead of trying to create my own righteousness by how much good I can do, I can rest in peace of knowing that Christ's righteousness is applied to me. And here's the whole point of Romans 10. That can be your story too. That can be your story too. Let's look at the last section of our text this morning. Verses 14 through 15. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The third thing that we see in our text this morning is that there is a mission worth giving your life to. There's a mission worth giving your life to, and that mission is entrusted to us by the king. Now we read these passages, and we hear a word like preach, and it can be easy to immediately think, oh, this only applies to the missionaries that go overseas. Or this section of the Bible only applies to uh, those that get their paycheck from the church and every Sunday for 30 minutes put on a Britney Spears mic and talk for 30 minutes. Is it, is it Britney Spears mic or is it a Garth Brooks mic? Which is this? Both? Okay, okay. I don't know what kind of crowd we have this morning. But to think that would be to miss the point of this section. It would be to miss the point of what Paul is saying. This mission is for everyone. This mission is for everyone, all believers, all followers of Jesus, all disciples, whether you are at the beginning of your journey, whether you are at the tail end of your journey, all disciples of Jesus Christ are on mission to carry the good news to the world, a world that is searching for something real. The definition of our mission is clear. Let's look at verse 15 again because I think it offers probably the simplest three-word definition of what it means to follow Jesus. Verse 15 tells us that our mission is to bring good news. To bring good news. And Paul's point here is actually pretty amazing to look at if we take all of his rhetorical questions and just read them in reverse. The mission that we're supposed to give our lives to is to bring good news. We're sent by the king to do that mission, and we're actually meant to preach, to talk, to dialogue, to share with our words what we know to be true. And when we do that, we have, or others have the opportunity to hear and to respond in belief. And when they call on the Lord, the same Lord that gives us a righteousness, the same Lord that gives us salvation and hope, they can receive salvation. But it all starts with us understanding our mission. And so this morning, very quickly here at the end, I want to I show us that our mission from God is unique, it's, import, or it's, uh, it's important, and it's urgent. 
First, the uniqueness of our mission. We are not on this mission to try and earn something. We are on this mission because of someone. See, every other religion in the world will ask you to earn something, will ask you to measure up, but not Jesus. Jesus says, because of who I am, I am sending you out into the world. So we don't bring good news to others because it will help us earn something. We bring good news to others because the world needs to know the one who sent us and saved us. There is no earning to be done. There is only hopeful, joyful obedience and submission. And that makes this a mission worth giving your life to. Because when we build our lives in the kingdom of God, we will not be disappointed. When we pour our lives out for others, we will not look back on that as time wasted. When we are inconvenienced in the process of sharing the reason for the hope that we have, we will not look back on that as an inconvenience at the end of the day. We can be confident that our God has already overcome the world and we just simply get the joy of participating in our part of the mission in his kingdom here and now. So that's the uniqueness of our mission. The importance of our mission is simply this. How else is the world going to hear? How else is the world going to hear? The mission is important because God's grand plan to bring salvation, to bring hope, to share the good news is through each one of us. And at first this, this don't judge me too harshly, at first this to me sounds absurd. <laughs> God, your grand plan for bringing the message of hope to the people that I love is through me. It's through me. You can't find anyone else more suited. You can't find anyone else better equipped. God, are you sure this is the right plan? You can't send a lightning bolt. You can't do the plagues again. God, why would you send me? And this is where we have to remember that our heart, our story can be found in the theater of Israel. You look back through the Old Testament, this question of God, are you sure you've got the right plan? This question is asked throughout the Old Testament. Moses asked this. Jonah asked this. God, why are you sending me? See, God is going to give us opportunities to carry out his mission. And he's going to equip us with what we need along the way. And so we're back to the question we asked a few minutes ago. Will you Trust him. Will you trust him? Will you trust that this is a mission worth giving your life to, even if you don't have all the answers right now, and that he will be with you along the way? So our mission is unique, it's important, and finally, it's urgent. It's urgent. I'm reminded of just a few weeks ago, a few of us sat on the stage and we shared about the beginning of our, our partnership with Greenwood Christian Academy as they bring their high school to the building next door. And Mike Chitty, who's their school superintendent, sat right over here and he reminded us, he told us that the time is short, that there is a world around us that is dying. Our community is grasping for something real, for a hope a truth, a connection that will sustain them. Our students, our kids are bombarded every day with invitations to put their trust in something that will hurt them, that will disappoint them. The people you love, your people, need the power of the resurrection of Jesus today. 
And this is not a guilt trip. I'm not trying to scare you into anything. I'm simply saying this, that when you have experienced a true hope, you realize that that hope is not meant to end with you. It's meant to be shared. It's meant to be poured out. It's meant to be carried farther and farther. So let me read these verses again. And this time I want you to visualize the faces and the names of people in your neighborhood, people in your workplace, people in your school, people at your favorite restaurant or where your kids play sports. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. There was a college professor. And this college professor was preparing to, to give her students the, the final exam at the end of the school year. And she knew that none of her students were going to pass. The material was too hard. She'd seen their slow progress throughout the year. And she knew that none of them would measure up to a passing grade. And so the day of the test came and she stood in front of her class and she announced that no one would have to take the test. <clears throat> and in fact, she was going to give everyone the grade that she would get if she took the test, which of course would be more than a passing grade. Well, students were relieved, students were ecstatic, there was high-fiving, there was cheering, and some of the students even came up and gave her a hug, but one student at the back of the class raised his hand and said, I'd actually like to take the test. I'd actually like the chance to prove what I know. I'd actually like the chance to earn the grade on my own. When we decline God's invitation to taste salvation, we are like the kid at the back of the class that says, no thank you, I'll do it on my own. When we say to God that I will do my very best to be a good person and I'll hope for the best in the end, we keep God at arm's length. And we have a God who says, I want you to accept my righteousness. I want you to accept my promise of belief. I want to give your life a hope and a purpose and a meaning. I don't want you to keep stumbling through life with no hope. But God will not make us do anything. He will not force us to do anything. We must respond. This morning, as the band comes to lead us in worship, there are going to be some uh, folks who come to these tables down here and up in the balcony that have lamps on them. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and, and you're thinking, I, you know, I don't know, I've never really thought about if I believe in Jesus or not. Or maybe you've thought about that in the past, but you say, I, I've never really said out loud if, if I do believe in Jesus. Maybe this morning, as, as, as we've read the scripture and as I've talked, someone you love is on your heart. This morning, I want to invite you to respond. Some of us are going to respond simply by standing and singing. Some of us are going to respond by going to these tables to pray with someone. Maybe you want to go to talk about your belief. Maybe you want to go be prayed for and pray with someone on behalf of someone you love this morning. But we all have the opportunity to respond. We have a God who is waiting and wanting to give us his righteousness 
and to give our lives a hope. And so this morning, let's stand and sing together. And I would invite you to respond either by singing or coming to the table for prayer today.